Hello and welcome to episode four of Little Science Talks. I'm Heidi and I'm the founder of Little Science Co. In my day job, I work to make clinical trials more inclusive. And I'm Anna, freshly baked marine biologist about to start work in the renewable advice sector. In season one, we are speaking to scientists from around the world to find out if and how generational influences shape their choices of a STEM career. In our last episode, we spoke to Kiara Whittle on her experiences of being a chemist and her work doing outreach and being a role model for young black girls. For episode four, we're catching up with Aberdeen-based Dr. John Baird, who, despite being asked to leave school at an early age, ended up as a lecturer in infectious disease and entomology at the University of Aberdeen. So remember to follow Little Science Co. on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, and that is all at Little Science Co. And take a look at our lovely new website, including new products over at littlescienceco.com. For now, we hope you enjoyed this episode and remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure that you don't miss future episodes. Hello and welcome to Little Science Talks. And today we are joined by the very lovely John Baird. John, do you want to introduce yourself? Well, I'm glad I'm lovely. I'm not <laughs> sure about that, but yes, I'm John Baird. I work at University of Aberdeen. I'm a senior lecturer. Uh, most of the, the stuff I lecture on is on insects or infectious disease. I'm a fellow of the Royal Entomological Society. I'm a trustee of that, organ- of that society as well. And that's my professional side. And perhaps it's worth saying that I love dogs. That's probably a, that's probably me. It's probably me summed up, really. Yeah. Yep. This is why we have you on the podcast because I love dogs too. So everything's fine. <laughs> Anna, are you a fan of dogs? I am a fan of dogs, but I couldn't keep them. I don't think because I'd just be sad, you know, if they died or when they die. Oh, don't. Yeah. See, you're already sad. It's it's terrible, but it's but you get over it. Like we all, you know, it's. You never really quite get over it, but it's like all grief. Apparently, yeah. the psychologists tell us that you have this, everybody has a period of grief, and then they come back to the same place they were before the grief. So everybody has this stable level of happiness, apparently, if you believe the psychologists. Mm-hmm. But it is really painful when they die, yeah. Yeah, it's the worst. It's the literal worst. I would definitely rather nominate certain members of my own family than my dog. I've never cried. No shame over in saying that. <laughs> I think I'm with you, Heidi. I've never cried over a, a, a human the way I cried when my dog died last. My last dog died. Yeah, it's uncontrollable. It's the worst. I remember when my first dog died. I think I must have been like eight or nine. And as a family, like we went into like mourning. Like I had a week <laughs> off school. My dad had a week off work. Like we just yeah. like stayed in the house for a week and just sobbed. It was the worst, absolute worst time. But then we got another dog, and it was great. That's so there's you back up to that level yeah. again. But it is searing pain. What I find was we're gonna talk end up talking about dogs the whole time. <laughs> I what I find no problem. <laughs> yeah, what I found was that I'd never expect I'd heard about people wailing at funerals and I'd never I didn't know what that meant until I the last moments of my dog and he died. And I it was uncontrollable. I could not control my emotions at all. Um so that was a that was a bit of a revelation. I didn't realize yeah, that with was you a on thing. That. Yeah. It's the worst. It's the absolute worst. It's like okay. on my phone screen. So my phone screensaver is my mom and dad's old dog who died like seven years ago. And everyone's like, oh, cute dog. Who's that? I'm like, oh, he's dead. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> I've got my own dog now. But, you know, that one. Yeah. That one's still there. I can't yeah. change a screensaver. Otherwise, my mom would kill me. So, 
Yeah. Anyway. Extraordinary. Yeah. I love that we have pro dog people on the podcast. This this should be like now a a caveat that you can't come on unless you're a dog person. Anna, you're probably not going to last. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Just don't want dead dogs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> as long as you're not a cat person, we should be okay. No, 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 no. No cats. <laughs> Just can't do it. They're too scary. They're terrified of cats. Anyway, John. Yes. Um, so <laughs> apart from dogs, uh, insects are your thing. And infectious yeah. disease, you mentioned. So how did you get to where you are now what was your kind of career trajectory well I mean how long have you got so I I I got asked to leave school when I was 16 which I did and then I've I've been I've had various jobs including in the RAF regiment I was a steel erector um all sort of physical jobs if you like and then but they were very boring and so I I went to university when I was 27 and did well, and then did a PhD on uh, predatory flatworms of all things, which I, New, Ze- New Zealand flatworm, which people may have heard of, uh, which is an invasive species. And it was good, it went well. And then I got a job at Aberdeen University working on uh, vaccines in two labs, which didn't go as well didn't really work to be honest with you. it was very I took over a project from someone else it was a very ambitious project uh, looking using single chain antibodies uh, which are little half an antibody that you can do all sorts of interesting things with um, and then I you might remember Mary Cotter Heidi yeah you probably don't Anna Mary Cotter is, too is a legend <laughs> yeah, too young. Mary Cotter was a legendary professor, a physiologist who was at University of Aberdeen. And, and really much of the teaching that is really good at Aberdeen, particularly in the biomedical sciences, and really is still a legacy of Mary Cotter. Uh, and Mary Cotter, I, I taught on a course with her and she was, I was lucky enough that she liked what I did. And sort of through that, I ended up getting a permanent position. Um, at Aberdeen. That's kind of a very short, potted history of, of why I'm here, I suppose. So I was lucky. I was very lucky that, that Mary liked what I did. Yeah, she was an utter legend. I remember she came into one of my first year medical sciences lectures and everyone was like, oh, Mary Cotter, Mary Cotter, you know, like the <laughs> mumbling of whispers throughout the lecture theatre. And I was like, who is this woman? Like, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. And then she started and I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Makes sense. She's fantastic. She was, yeah, absolutely amazing. And I think most of the lectures that I did in first year, at least, were based on what she was doing and teaching, at least. I think so. People like this are so influential. We stay with Mary and her husband, Norman, who was also a physiologist at Aberdeen uh, in Exeter. We haven't been able to see them for a while, but but uh, they've become uh, close personal friends. And it's, it's, it's lovely to have people like that in your life. Uh, and a lot of the processes that we have, still, I see Mary's touch on all sorts of different things. And she she loved students. She cared in a in a really profound way about students. And I think that's that rubbed off on a on a lot of us. So, mm-hmm. so hats hats off to Mary Cotter. All right, we'll just dedicate this episode to Mary. Cotter. <laughs> She's definitely like her legacy, though, is pretty major because yeah. I've I've heard Gordon McEwen talk about her. I've heard oh. Derek Shewan talk about her. So yeah, everyone, basically all of the really good lecturers that like students can go to, it feels like they've been coached by her 
her influence and stuff is ob- is very obvious. I've heard the same about John. As someone who's recently graduated, everyone's like, oh, wait till you go to John's lecture. Oh, John's the funny one. Oh, John is always so nice. You can always approach John. So honestly, I think, you know, people are saying the same about you. Well, that's really lovely to hear, Anna. I, and I maybe I'm a good learner then, because uh, it was Mary. It was Mary that taught me. So, so that's lovely. Full circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cute. That is cute. Okay, so we just skipped over the bit where you got asked to leave school. Um, what did you do? <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> oh, so I'm I'm from a, a a loyalist or unionist housing estate in North Belfast. So, you know, the housing estate I was brought up in was uh, had lots of people were were not there because they were in jail for armed robbery or or murder. Um, it was during the troubles in Northern Ireland when and, and I, North Belfast was and West Belfast where, where most people uh, were murdered. So, I, you know, I passed my 11 plus to go to a grammar school and then I sort of fitted the role to my background and became sort of like a disruptive. I, I was bored and I didn't really do uh, my schoolwork like I was supposed to. And I was always in trouble. And then the, the thing that really set it off, I didn't smoke, but most of my friends smoked. And we used to go to the, the sheds that they kept the, the tractors in that they cut the, the rugby pitches. And I don't know, we started, we broke into the, to the to the shed one day and, and someone started it of course we didn't know what we were doing and there's like levers tractors drive you don't put your foot on the, the pedal the way you do in a car and someone just put the lever forward and we were all hanging off it and off we went out through the through the shed <laughs> oh through the shed door and the tractor it keeps going so you don't it, the tractors there's a lever in the front and you, you just put it in and it goes you don't have to keep your foot on the pedal so off the tractor went we jumped off it and the tractor went off across the the, the fields and, and ended up in a ditch somewhere. Anyway, we we got we got caught for that and um and they just sent me home with a letter to my mum saying that we think John should find an alternative <laughs> place to be educated. <laughs> the nice wording of it, we think John should yeah, please leave yeah. us alone. <laughs> yeah, I know it's it was didn't feel like an expulsion. They let me stay to, to finish my exams and then and then they said go away. So I I didn't yeah, that was that for me. Fair. I think that was a fair reaction. Uh, yeah. Tractor, ditch. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe. It, no, they were probably, I was wasting my time at school, really. It was pointless. I wasn't, I didn't have any um, drive to, to, to do anything meaningful or useful. So what made you go back to uni? Like, obviously you'd said that you were bored and stuff when you were in the armed forces, but what was, you know, what made you go, okay, maybe I'll go and get a degree. Like, what made that spark happen? Uh, boredom. Well, lots of things, actually. So I got in trouble when I was in the Air Force as well. I did, this is going to sound like I'm making this up, but I'm not. So we, it's a very long story. But anyway, me and two of my friends, one who's Irish and the other one's from Bath, we were in Germany with our tanks. My squadron had uh, tanks. And we got re- were really bored and then we got drunk. And then we stole one of the tanks when we were in Germany and drove it all around the Air Force base over nuclear shelters up the runway. And then we, we broke out through the fence and went to Holland in it. And we were so, <laughs> we'd, we'd actually packed our bags, can you believe? 
Just so we didn't have to Holland all our time. Yeah. yeah, we ended Packed up in the bags. police court. We packed our bags. We thought there was a guy called Colonel Gaddafi that you you might not remember. He was the leader of Libya, and we thought we we were going to be able to drive to Libya and sell him the tank. We were re- very drunk. <laughs> what had you been drinking? Like Jägermeister. <laughs> of course. I mean, everyone's had that. You know, yeah. let's go and see Colonel Gaddafi on Jäger. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason we were going to go to see Colonel Gaddafi is because I've been seeing a girl who was. Um, half Libyan and half Irish. I don't know. Anyway, there was lots of strange <laughs> chats and we had talking heads on through our heads, headphones. Uh, uh, Psycho Killer, I don't know if you know that tune, but it seemed very apt at the time. I was commanding the tank, Bernie was driving it. And eventually we just, we started sobering up and thought, what are we doing? <laughs> At least that realisation eventually happened. Yeah, and we eventually ended up uh, being arrested by the Dutch border police. And so I I, I did uh, a month, 40, 48 days, 48 days in military prison for that, uh, which wasn't all that bad, really. A place called MCTC, Military Corrective Training Centre. So it was kind of fun, I suppose. The things we do when we're drunk. Yeah. <laughs> we always end up in military prison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no biggie. Yeah, the things you do when you're bored. Yeah, absolutely. So I got out of the Air Force and then I just fell into jobs. It was the early 90s and there wasn't, there wasn't much employment around at this time, actually. And so worked on building sites, worked in the roads, picking up the crash barriers you see on the motorway, which was a horrible job. Uh, the last shift I did on there was three days solid can you believe digging holes putting up steel because it was all price work and there was no health and safety in those days so you could just you the quicker you got it done the more money you got and if you didn't get it done in time they took money off you so you this sort of urge to get things done and doing them dangerously so i was just at a really i just had enough of doing stupid things and i decided that i wouldn't do stupid things anymore or not not very many um or less um, and then I thought I'd go and do a, an access course because I didn't have qualifications to go straight into university and then uh, went to Queen's University in, in Belfast for my undergrad and PhD. And then you've just been fully on the straight and narrow ever since, have you not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A little glint in your eye there. Oh, uh, yeah. I haven't stolen any vehicles for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been caught by any border police. We're all fine. Yeah, none of that. None of that. Yeah, I'm more sort of mischievous than troublemaker now, I, I, I hope. Aberdeen hopes. Mm, absolutely. Oh, it's no secret. I, I don't keep my past a secret. Quite happy to sort of you know most people i know have got sort of of if if you and i do feel sorry for young people at the moment because you know i was able to put those things behind me and i i do wonder about uh, young people being recorded and 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 demonized for things that they've done when they're young it really disturbs me yeah it's difficult to make a mistake now when it be a genuine mistake it, it tends to be something that like repeats and loops over I think so. It comes back to haunt. But young people do stupid things. I mean, maybe not as stupid as me, but, you know, young, young people are full of hormones and, and maybe they've, they've had an unstable background or they've had trauma. And it sort of there's their behaviors related to that that aren't always excusable, I suppose. But, but it shouldn't ruin someone's life or follow them around and stop them achieving. At least I don't, I don't think it should anyway. Um, so, so I do really... I think it's tough for young people. And I think some older people perhaps aren't as 
patient or or understanding or forgiving or perhaps their memories aren't all that good but what they get yeah, I was going to say they've forgotten yeah. what they did <laughs> yeah so it's easy to point the finger isn't it so I've got a lot of empathy for young people I hope I do anyway with their if, with their circumstances so what about when you so obviously you did your access course and stuff and then you went into education you became an insect man Mm. at 27 so that's pretty yeah. late by today's standards like how was that it's old man it's old yeah. right? <laughs> straight into retirement yeah. <laughs> it's not old it's not old i'm saying that because i'm 29 it's not yeah. old it's so old so old i didn't really know do you know when i first uh phoned a university i can't remember where it was and they said what sort of degree do you want to do this is how clueless i was i said like a modular degree because I thought you could go and I didn't know what I thought, really. I just thought you'd like choose bits and pieces of stuff that you were interested in. Of course, it doesn't really work like that. They meant subject and you're like, no, bits of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I was like a bit of biology, bit of this, bit of that stuff, you know. Um, I, I just was so clueless. So, uh, uh, but I just had to think about what I was interested in. And there was many things, uh, but biology was the thing that was most interesting to me at the time. And then when I did my degree, it's just usually how random things can be. There was uh, uh, people from the Department of Agriculture in Northern Ireland used to come down and lecture us. And they were the, I liked them. They were very down to earth, very pragmatic. They didn't uh, prance around and sort of make you feel small or anything like that. And they were entomologists. Uh, and so I ended up, where I did most of my PhD. Well, I did half of my PhD at the Department of Agriculture in Northern Ireland and had a such a great time i i loved it there it was a bit mad but it wasn't stuffy uh, and so i i i really felt like i could get on with things without without sort of being really i don't know irritated i suppose by by stuffy yeah. academics talking down to me <laughs> it's quite hard there's to a stick. lot of academics that do that i won't i won't name names but <laughs> but you'll know them yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. but they do like they just kind of it's as if you are literally like nothing to them. Whereas yeah. and a lot of the time, the PhD students or the postdocs or whatever are like the driving force behind the labs that they're the head of. And so you just kind of look at the gap of like, but but they're actually doing a lot of the legwork and why are you talking to them like crap? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And that is everywhere in academia. It's unfortunate. And I it, there's many, you know, that you can have many explanations for it. I think there's there's some some of it's lack of confidence. Some of it's how it's always been done and how they were treated. I think some of it's a lack of respect, lack of ability to reflect. And perhaps there's some of it that's people who are very sort of driven towards a single goal in their research. Perhaps they just don't really think very much about the things that, that other people think about in terms of how they, how they deal with people. I don't yeah. know. A lot of scientists, I guess, are very, you know, they don't have a lot of empathy, I suppose, for people, you know, they say it as, as it is. And, you know, I guess that's a backside of being super clever sometimes. So, if, I mean, I'm not speaking about myself. <laughs> no, no, no. But um, honestly, so, some people, so, um, you know, like Sheldon, the big bang theory and stuff like that. Um, he doesn't care what he says. And if that hurts someone, well, let, the, let it hurt someone. So I think, I agree with what you say, John. It's become really obvious as well, like 
I said we weren't going to talk about COVID, but throughout the pandemic, like the lack of respect for like other views and just kind of if if a scientist has a view, then that's the correct view, correct in air quotes. And anybody else that disagrees is wrong or stupid or whatever else. And it it there's no kind of I feel like it's really it's shown me anyway, like the science communicators that I actually think are any good and the ones that I just think you're it's not a dialogue, it's just a one-way thing that you actually want. It's not a two-way challenging discussion that you want. It's just a it's a tell yeah. thing rather than a, a discuss thing. Absolutely. That's exactly what's happened. And it's unfortunately the conversations have been closed down. And uh, you know, so science is supposed to be a, a big community that you know people are very honest and about you know their their reasons for doing things, but it actually isn't really. People are motivated by selfishness uh, often, uh, or or the, the, with a trying to protect their position, and uh, that you know the, their position that they've taken in terms of you know the reasoning, but also their position in in a university or a research group, uh, and I think I completely agree, Heidi. Uh, that COVID has really exposed the sort of soft underbelly of of science. Uh, and and I wonder what we do about that. I mean, there's there's a group called Retraction Watch, which you may have heard of. Who, who've, yeah, yeah we've been sort of looking at sort of some of this over the over the years, and and the, the rubbish that's well, people would be making things up and getting it published uh, for personal gain. So it, it has been going for quite a while, and and maybe this will be maybe there's some good to come out of COVID. I don't know if, if I'm being. With my hope, I know, right? <laughs> you, you something hope. has to happen. <laughs> you hope. Like something. Some something has to happen. I thought it was really interesting what Anna said as well about you know people who are really smart and maybe there's something about there's a there's a trade off. Actually, you know, a lot of the people who I met who are really super successful researchers actually are some of the some of the nicest, which is which is interesting. I guess it's a mixed picture. Yeah. Yeah. It's different, isn't it? I think when when you get a nice researcher who's like not only, I guess, like academically smart, but they're also like emotionally smart, it helps. Yeah. And it's yeah. it means that they lift up everybody around them as well. They give credit where it's due and they support early career researchers and all that kind of thing. And that it, it's frustrating because that's so rare <laughs> that you, you find a good one and everyone's like, oh, magnet, go to them, stick with yeah. them. And it, it makes things tricky. It does seem rare, doesn't it? And of course, the whole system whereby everybody's fighting for the same money, I think it can turn people unpleasant. Turns people rabid, man. Like they get so competitive <laughs> with each other. It's the politics of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is wild. Like, so my PI, who was my PhD supervisor, fantastic to work with. And I was literally like, well, I'm not leaving. Like, I'm. I'll make the tea. So if you want to pay me, that would be an absolute bonus. So I'm just going to stay here. And he was like, oh God, she's serious. I'll find some money. I'll find some money and don't stay in the staff kitchen. And I stay and then the more you speak to people about like career progression and stuff, everyone's like, well, you know, you really should go to a different institution. You really should go to a different lab or a different PI. And you're like, but in comparison, when so many of them are so awful, why would I do that to myself? Like mentally, why that might help my career, but it, it might also break my brain. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, you don't want to go and break yourself. It's very it's hard to know. You only know these things, I suppose, on reflection, you know, when you yeah. you can't you can't do a controlled study, unfortunately. There is that, yeah, people 
value people who move around a bit, but it's quite quite difficult for people to do that sometimes. Yeah, it is. Especially like when you've settled somewhere. I've got a dog, man. I don't want to uproot the dog. He's got friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the dog. <laughs> like, but he knows he knows all the local dogs. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the reason, but it definitely plays a part from getting... be a reason, or kids yeah. or partners or money or you know it's it's easier it's choice got... as well like if you've settled somewhere and you're happy then why yeah you, i don't think you should have to move but it ends up being you gotta run around hmm. just muting myself because you know she's downstairs feeling is this your is this your young one <laughs> yeah uh... <laughs> it's all right we welcome all dogs shapes sizes children exactly <laughs> <laughs> some less hairy <laughs> we'll see <laughs> yeah absolute superwoman i don't know how you do it I know, I know, good on you. I don't yeah. know how you do it either. Oh, well, this is about John. It's about John. Back <laughs> <laughs> to John. Back to John. <laughs> on a, like, actual serious note, though, I don't know how academics with kids do that thing. I just don't. Not in the UK. I feel in, well, I've grown up in Sweden, and here it's, like, childcare. Of course, everyone has basically free childcare. You know, you go back to work, you you put the kid in childcare, and then you just live your life. But in the UK, like, it's mad. It's it's really, really mad that the child gets, or I think in Scotland at least, the child gets free um, childcare after three, but you only have like maternity leave or whatever until the child is 12 months old. Yeah. So in that gap, I mean, you're if if they're in full-time childcare, I think you pay a lot of money. Yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of people like plan them as well. So like you'll have the first one and then go back for a little bit and then have the second one to make sure that you like get it out in a in a wanna yeah but then all the you know you can't go back to work what's the point yeah something has to change so backwards <laughs> it is yeah so yeah. in Sweden is it free well basically it's like a percentage of your salary but there's a cap to it so you yeah. can't pay more so yeah I just don't get it I think Sweden's ahead of the UK well the Scandi countries are ahead of the UK in, in so many aspects really aren't they yeah yeah well yeah, yeah most aspects <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's an interesting subject though because you know when pis employ a woman who's of reproductive age you know then the woman goes and has a child and they can feel the pi can then feel exposed because the lab work's not getting done and mm. i'm not sure that problem has been addressed properly either because my feeling is and i i, I haven't done this my feeling is it's it would it can it can work against the PI, but it also could work against a woman, probably aware of this, you know, who maybe maybe they won't be the top. Now, nothing will be said because nobody says anything, do they? But Yeah, it can never be written down, but no, you but know. See yeah. that there's there's a tension there, isn't there? There's a conflict. And and yeah, I don't I don't think that's been resolved properly. No, it's just kind of been left, I think, where everyone's kind of assumed that now that's the law then everyone's cool with it. <laughs> like everyone will adhere to the law and you're like, well, uh-huh, but you can adhere to the law in like by very varying degrees. Yeah. You just I, don't write it down. And then I think that's so. why we're in the situation that so many people are in. How do you feel that if you, you've obviously got a child and I, how do you might, but how do you feel that's going to hold you back? Or is, are you going to be able to, to pursue your career in the way that you, you want to? I think in my in my blog post for Heidi's uh, website, I, I wrote something about, you know, there's never the right time to have a child. And you just, you know, you have to just just deal with it and do what you can. And of course, you know, you have to prioritize. 
there's some things I've had to you know take away from my to-do list and everything it just saddens me that um you know people hold off you know going to uni and getting an education you know because they might be pregnant or or when I was pregnant with Freya as someone asked me oh when are you dropping out and when are you coming home I'm like I'm not dropping out and I'm not coming home like I'm finishing my degree which uh yeah there needs to be more like support um the University of Aberdeen was actually really really supportive but I know other unis haven't you know maybe been as supportive to students with kids and that you know hinders people because sometimes you you fall pregnant and you decide to keep the child and a lot of obstacles but also like it's not it's not a bad thing to choose to have a baby when we're adults like it's not and even like mature students and stuff like you you can choose to have a baby whenever you want and it doesn't or you know you fall pregnant and you should just be able to deal with that I find that it's such a horrible situation where it's something that should be so happy for you and then you're suddenly asked with like faced with questions like when are you going to drop out when is when is this good thing that's happening to you you're going to ruin this other thing that's happening to you like what yeah yeah it's it's strange I think I don't want kids I've been quite open with people around me that I don't want kids my mum was like fantastic I've got a grandchild and I was like yeah his name's Barney he's dead furry he's got a great tail he's a dog and she now refers to him as like her grandchild that's the only grandchild she's ever going to have if unless I convince my partner to get another dog which working on it but yeah, like the the women around me have been in a in an academic sense, the women around me have been fantastic career women with kids and there's been no issue. So I don't necessarily think it'll be an issue for me, but I do wonder if if I interview for like postdocs and fellowships and stuff in the future, will will it will somebody on an interview panel be thinking, hmm, is she is she a safe bet? Because you know, she's been with her partner for a while and She's yeah. of that age, ticking bot, ticking time bomb, and all that. It's just like yeah. let women choose, and it that does come into things where I'm like, I'll be so open about not wanting kids because I I do think it'll probably benefit me at some point in the future, which is awful. But you just sometimes you just have to do what you've got to do. That's how it is at the moment, isn't it? I think it's just I don't. Yeah, I'm not sure. You can't change the world, unfortunately. I don't. You, I suppose in a sense you just got to look after yourself for the moment until processes improve i don't that's not yeah. a very satisfactory thing is it but i get i guess i, I don't know what else you do really just seek support where you have it and you know yeah. take care of yourself it's, be open about it i'm glad the university looked after you and i'm sorry yeah no some fantastic uh yeah. you know support i remember sitting an exam very pregnant and had to go pee like every 15 minutes and they were totally fine with it um and then when she was born and stuff i just you know came there fed <laughs> went back to writing and then you know took a break uh, a year off just to be be a mom for a year and then yeah back to it so nice it's one. just a puzzle um but I, I think a lot of you know I had amazing support like from family and then some people might not have that so I think it's it's good like I think the University of Aberdeen has a parents um student network that people can join if they're you know finding themselves pregnant I suppose and just get some help so yeah did did Thomas get help as well like obviously it's you you had a bump like that was kind of pretty obvious (laughs) that you were pregnant (laughs) I was was kind of hiding it I'm not sure how well I hit it John but (laughs) in in lectures and stuff in practicals I I kind of got excused from the dissecting the rats and stuff (laughs) 
Yeah, I think I knew you were pregnant. I don't know if you had it. I don't know if I don't know. I'm pretty sure I knew. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I told, I think, lectures. Yeah. But then you're new. You're, you're a new student. You're supposed to be, you know, living the student life. And, you know, maybe no one wants to be friends with a pregnant teenager. That's so grim. <laughs> I can't student drink. Life, <laughs> yeah. Student life, like, at all is grim anyway. Like, the amount of yeah. ill-advised hangovers that you have to go through in Freshers' Week. Like, man... The fact that you might have missed out on some of that is a blessing rather than anything else. <laughs> yeah. Vomited anyways. Yeah, yeah, you got vomit, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh god. But I guess if we if we come back to John. So I guess if if we have a think about like the outside influences, because this whole series is about like generational influences and how people end up in STEM and what their journeys are like and stuff. Obviously, you, you didn't have like a necessarily like a prof in the house but what was your like influence from outside like when you told your family and stuff that you were going going to go back to uni like what was their response I do think I even like did I tell yeah I I don't really I I haven't we haven't got a close I haven't got a close family I don't think my dad was dead I told my mom and she's supportive but she left school when she was 14 you know she valued education but she didn't she didn't understand anything about it really um I think I was pretty flu pretty solo uh, in that sense influences i don't know i think probably being in the raf was useful the raf regiment sort of taught you a lot of resilience other inspirational people <laughs> that you know you might like david attenborough or you know it's a bit cheesy i think it was really more for me it wasn't so much aspirational as desperational sort of trying to you know i, I didn't have this big thing that I wanted to do necessarily I just wanted I knew what what I was doing wasn't for me Uh, I needed something to to get my head into so so yeah I I don't really have a very inspirational story (laughs) yeah that's good though like it's just like there's so many yeah there's so many like fairy tales of oh I saw this you know I saw David Attenborough and then I wanted to do this and that was like my life's goal and I don't think it's like that for most people I think it's more like oh God, I should probably go to uni and I'll study this thing because I'm not crap at it. Yeah. And then what will happen afterwards, I don't know. Like, And most people just sort of fall into it in different ways. So I think that's probably more of a realistic reflection than like, I saw David Attenborough on BBC Two and assumed <laughs> I would be one day like him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a bit of that, isn't there? Because, you you know, you grew up in these programmes and it sort of influences you. I remember asking a lecturer once, like, oh, so why did you, why did you become a, I can't remember why I asked this, but I was like, why did you become a, a lecturer in this a subject? He was like, because I needed a job. <laughs> <laughs> That's worse than me. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what I expected. Oh, yeah, it's a good, and it's a good job. It's a lovely job. I mean, you know, it's, I feel so lucky, really privileged. And I suppose that that is a driver. Once you once you start to see what what the job can be, you can carve out your own niche if you're lucky enough to be in a quite a progressive uh, university or school, and that that's marvelous. I just I love that as long as it works and you get a you know you don't mess things up. Right? You try you know if you try new things and they they work and and the students like it, then then you get to try other new things, and that's. That's amazing. So what are the best bits about your job now? Like, obviously, you're kind of well-known in the uni and, like, you've cemented it. You've got a bit of freedom because people know you're good. What extra bits of freedom have you got and what are the good bits? The the best thing I've done probably recently or maybe ever is the the course that Anna was on, the creativity course. 
and that's run. And of course, you've presented it this year on it, Hardy. It's a short course, uh, and I didn't really know how I could make that course work in a short period of time. And my ambitions had to be limited, but I think it's it's worked in a way for me in the way that I wanted it to. Students make products in the course, as you know, they've got a very short period of time, something like 30 hours, three zero hours to make these products. And they are more or less successful in terms of being marked. But I think it's been successful for all of the students that I've talked to in terms of just understanding how difficult it is to create uh, and make a product. And do, do you remember Elliot, Anna? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he, so they've got a pop-up. I saw, have you seen their pop-up yeah, their bar? Wine, wine, uh, winery. Yeah, so that's, I'm not Amazing. saying it's the course that, that you <laughs> know, it, yeah, it might have been, uh, but it, or, or at least it maybe had some part to play. So that really makes me extremely happy because I've been training biologists for a long time, but it's nice to, it's nice, biologists can do, should be creative, right? So they should yeah. be able to do other things. They've got so many skills, so they can do other stuff. Just for context, do you want to, if you feel comfortable, just um, telling us about the course? Because I think listeners might not know. Yeah, it's it's a short course at level three or level four honours year where students have some workshops to try and sort of free their minds up a little bit and think a bit more creatively. And then they've got a few weeks to come up with products and the products can be almost anything. And that that is great freedom for the students. The title of the, the course, uh, the first word in it is imagination. And so that's what I want. I didn't want to stultify imagination. I wanted the imagination to go, but it makes it extremely difficult. And the, it's not an easy course. I don't think it's an easy course. It might, yeah. you know, I think there was a lot of sniffing from some of my colleagues about, oh, it's not a silly course. And I've, you know, they can help come and have a go and see how they get on. Uh, and the students have really stepped up and we've had some extraordinary interesting products that you were involved in <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I here loved, we go yeah, oh, it's, it was, it's a, for an adult audience uh, I think that's reasonable to say Perhaps yeah. we don't, maybe we don't want to go into details now <laughs> over I the age limit for the podcast <laughs> yeah okay that's right <laughs> um, um, we've had wonderful movies kids books but you can't just have a kid's book. It has to have a purpose and that it has to like be useful, which is really puts an extra layer of difficulty, I think, into it. Uh, this year we had a device from a student who's based in Hawaii. So it was all remote, of course. I say this year, last year, isn't it? And her device was, she was fed up getting into the toilet, either in her house or when she was out and about and being afraid of the noises that might occur while she was... <laughs> In the toilet. (laughs) So she had a multifunctional device uh, that we'd be able to check uh, for any sort of germs. I think it was UV light. There was a a wiping device on it. And also it made a noise. And if you really wanted to, it would uh, create a note. It was just like a small, small sort of phones type device. And so if she was a bit worried about what was going to happen, the thing could make a, a big noise and anybody who was in the vicinity wouldn't be able to hear anything that, she was mm-hmm. up to up in the market i think there's a market for it so that, that that's the course and it's been twice highlighted by the external examiners i was actually supposed to go down to westminster can you believe to the royal society wow. of biology and tell them about the course 
but unfortunately COVID got in the way. Uh, but I hope to I hope to do that. What I loved about the course is because what I was complaining kind of in the start of my degree was it's all biology. There's nothing, you know, I took extracurricular courses about I want to learn more about finance and economics, just basic economy stuff. Um, and you you kind of you had guest lecturers come and tell us about entrepreneurship and you know how to start a company what you need to think about we had lots of creative people I mean unfortunately Heidi couldn't come yeah that was the year that I couldn't do it yeah yeah um so yeah I think it's it's the perfect course for for scientists just to not having to think inside that little tiny box that we usually get stuck in quite easily because scientists so often they just sort of get in this like rut of data collection make a project collect data, write the project up, make the project. And like, it's just this big cycle of dryness, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but it doesn't do like, it doesn't add anything. And even like when I was setting the business up, I, I did it because like I was missing creative stuff. Like I was, I was doing the PhD and I was missing creativity. And then I'd speak to my boss about it and stuff. And he was, he always knew that I had a business on the side. I was never like, you know, secretive about it. And he was always like, but you do creative stuff in the office. And I was like, it's not the same. Like it's, it's not the same. Yeah. <laughs> I can't sit and doodle for my PhD. It then it brings in knowing stuff within the business. Now people know me for making badges or, you know, doing public engagement or whatever. And people can then bring that into the academic sense and it strengthens your science. It strengthens your network. It strengthens like all of the projects that you're part of because that creativity is so important. And often it's just left by the wayside like we didn't really get any of that in my degree program I think I did a module on like bio business but that was like an optional extra and honestly not that great yeah <laughs> and that was very much business I think the bio business yeah. of course you need to need to know about business whereas this was almost the opposite that that was about the sort of nuts and bolts things you have to get in place if you want to be. and the creativity is of course almost the, I wanted to be the opposite end of the spectrum this sort of wow you know yeah let, let your mind let your mind go having said that i think it's going to be extended i want to extend it through the university but obviously things have gotten away for students in other degree programs and also through the years it looks like we're maybe going to be doing something first and second year to start students off thinking creatively from the get-go you guys have missed the boat a little bit for, for the whole <laughs> for the full package um but oh. uh, <laughs> so hopefully right, we were there at the beginning <laughs> yeah you were there man you were there and I think that thing you said Heidi about it's I, I think you touched on it it's it's good for your head it's your head yeah. needs there's some outlet to be creative it's you know it's it's how we are maybe some people are I just I just don't believe people when they say they're not creative I'm like you just haven't found the right creative thing though yeah I think that yeah I think that's maybe right. it's not drawing maybe it's playing swing ball like I don't know it's it's something it's just it's just not Pokemon it's just cards not this. yeah, yeah. Like, that's your deal go with it like yeah it is it's just kind of the more opportunities to like think differently surely you're gonna then that will strengthen the way that you think about the way that the science that you do it has to surely it, ha it must do science is supposedly a creative process it's certainly if you look at the you know the early science or the philosophers or the early I mean the early the Greek philosophers they were coming up with all sorts of weird ideas. It turned out to be some of them wrong and some of them turned out to be not far off. Democritus and the theory of atoms and, and all sorts of other things that they... And that was just through creative thinking. But now you have ethics stopping you. <laughs> no, right? I'm dead. <laughs> to be clear, though, we do not. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it is, though. It's kind of the more creative things you do, 
the more creative things you do like it, it just spirals and suddenly your science becomes more creative the projects that you think of become more creative the data collection methods become more creative like it all just it just gets better and it's nice yeah. it's it's also sometimes like science can be lonely and having a chat over like a coffee with someone about something harebrained idea that you've got is a nice way to break that up i think so you'd almost think within a what you're saying there heidi within a phd perhaps or you know there should maybe there should be like a, a, a creative part yes, of it we a million not, percent yeah maybe like away from the phd or only tangential uh, but of course it would be seen as a waste of time wouldn't it um, of course it would because it, it doesn't it doesn't do anything for you it doesn't write your thesis yeah i think most phd students that i know have ended up doing something so another person from the uni so lacrista morton she did a phd within the epidemiology unit and now she's got a side gig as a, a potter or a ceramicist she's got a kiln in her house and oh. so she's four days a week in in epidemiology doing a great job being a research fellow having a great time one day a week messing about with ash glazes and oh i've seen the words and beautiful yeah so good so good you gotta link it <laughs> i'll link it yeah please yeah. i really so that i did a pot i did a pottery course a ceramics course before i did the creativity course to put myself out of my comfort zone and i made these pots and i made a glaze and invented it invented a glaze um, <laughs> and then i actually put my pots in which were not very good, I can tell you. Um, mm-hmm. But I put them into the degree show the, for the part-time so students yeah. at Grey yeah. School of Art. And they were absolutely the worst pots in that show. <laughs> but that didn't matter. That, yeah. And that was good, actually, because I, I had to stand by my pots and say, mm-hmm. that's what I did. In, I made this thing. In a, yeah. yeah, I made this thing. It's not very good, but I like it. And I've, I had fun doing it. But also, like, good is subjective. So there might have been someone looking there and being like, geez, that is, how did he do that? Uh, <laughs> it, po- possibly. Uh, po- Maybe. Po- po- <laughs> I'm throwing you a bone here. Yeah, I like, I like to tell myself that. They were fun. Do you know what? They were representing rave culture in pots. That's what they were. That's what they are. We've got them up in That's here. That's niche. That's an Etsy store waiting to happen. Yeah, so it was a... <laughs> It was a piece with a message. It is. It was like, so I mentioned earlier on where I'm doing a book club tonight, which is why we're recording before it. But the book club is with a woman called Anna Poshyska, who is author of a book called Handmade, which you will love if you haven't read it already. It's called Handmade, A Scientist's Search for Meaning Through Making. And each chapter is split into a different thing. So clay, wool, glass, sugar, plastic. It, it goes all the way through. And she basically tells like a bit of her life story and a process of making with that thing so in the clay chapter she goes to make a clay pot and figures out like what her phd like how she's going to recover from her phd with clay i like it the sugar one was really good because she's talking about like she swam the channel and mini rolls you find out so much stuff about minerals that you would never expect to <laughs> like at <laughs> the outside of them is hydrophobic so they float and so like when you're doing the channel, you can just whap a mini roll in the sea, crash it. There's oh. your little your sugar boost. It's fab. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. But you should read it, John, because you would, by the sounds of it, it's it's fully up your street. I've just written down Handmade by Anna. Poshyski. She's doing creative nonfiction storytelling courses and stuff now. She's just gone freelance. She used to be a material scientist. So yeah, fully creative freelancer. Yeah, I think that's one of it. And I think it's one of the things that, also PhD students, I suppose it's not always talked about very much is there's not 
a job in science for every PhD student. Certainly not a job that they might want to do. They might have to take their skills and adapt them and, and take on other skills and do something else. It's just like the understanding of if you want to stay, it might be hard. <laughs> um, there's a graph that someone had shared on Twitter. I think it was Zoe Ayres had shared it on Twitter the other day. And it was like a one of these exponential ones where this, you know, there's this many PhDs coming out of the academy. And then the line of PIs just stays really stagnant along the bottom. <laughs> like, oh crap, where do I go in there? Basically just saying like being outside of academia is not an alternative career path anymore. It's it's probably going to be the default for most PhD students. I think it is. One of my PhD students, although I was the sort of junior sort of uh, supervisor, she's she's got into patenting, legal patents in science, and she works for a law firm. And she's really like super smart. And maybe that's a better challenge for her, I think. And I, I think she's made a good decision. I think she's going to be, she's a brilliant writer. And I, I think she's really quick thinker. So the PhD helped her, I think. It was great for her, but it helped her to go and do this other thing that's sort of outside of science or at least just tangential. It is. It's just kind of figuring out what you want and using, if you are going to do a PhD or even like a master's or an undergrad, like using it as a way to explore a bit rather than it just being this caged, like you do the science, you <laughs> live, live by the science. Like, no, maybe think about doing something else at the same time. Yeah, caged. I like that. My undergrad was great, but I, yeah, I, I think up until this point in my career, I'm just a bit like, wow, I could have been so creative. <laughs> and yeah, I was never given an opportunity to, you never like taught how to. So now it's, I'm very much like everyone go, go do that ceramics course. Yeah. <laughs> Present your stuff at a degree show. On you go. Fantastic. I, you enjoy it so much. Even if you yeah. don't produce something that's satisfactory or you don't particularly like or whatever, the pro, it's the process. And it takes away the perfectionist side, I suppose, as well, a bit. Absolutely. Definitely, yeah. You don't work with clay if you're a perfectionist. I mean, <laughs> forget it. Yeah. It's too unforgiving. It good really exercise, is. though, yeah. Yeah, no, it is. It is a good exercise. Yeah, it's just about kind of, yeah, messing up and being, like, playful as an adult. Yeah, or maybe do work, as you say, Anna, do work with clay, actually, if you're a perfectionist. Maybe yeah, that's, maybe that's the way to look at it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Get used to not being perfect all the time because science will bite you in the ass if you think that's going to happen. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly you'll get a, a lab result and you're just like, wait, what? That, we didn't agree this universe. Yes. That was not yeah. what we thought was coming. Yeah, yeah. Ignore that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or not. Don't do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, right? So usually we ask everyone for a, a top tip or a pearl of wisdom that they wish that they'd learned at some point earlier in their career. <laughs> I can see you smoking here. <laughs> Don't let it be about tanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is there anything that you wish you'd learned earlier? Yeah. If someone was going into science uh, after a PhD, I would do a lot of research, if, you can, if it's possible, about the group into which you're being parachuted. <laughs> I can see this little glint in your eye here. It's hard to get those secrets about what's actually going on in a lab. People with a PhD, any anything, I think undergrad's different. Uh, you can it's quite easy to get information. As you go further up, sort of through the the levels, then it becomes quite difficult, and people aren't necessarily open about everything that goes on. Now you won't. That it's, it's too much to expect that. But I think 
you know, if, as a younger person and you really want to have a, a career in science or you think you might want to, I would do a bit of a bit of research. And how do you do that? Well, you might look online. There's more information online now. You might look at see what former find out former students. You might go to a conference if you can as another grad, talk to people, see what's going on. And I think try and get as much information as you can and choose carefully. When I got my degree through and I did well, I, I was phoned up by professors asking, asking me, did I want to go and do a PhD with them and all the rest of it? But I was old enough not to be seduced by that because you feel flattered, don't you? Like, yeah, mm, definitely. Me. They want um, me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, whether I took the right choice, I don't know. But anyway, I think that, that would be my, don't take anything at face value. Have a look behind the scenes. Yeah, someone who's gone through the PhD and watched some people go through some terrible PhDs. Mm, yeah. That's some sage advice. Yeah, it's always go for the supervisor, go for the good team. Yeah, It's not necessarily about the topic because if the topic is good but the team is horrendous, you're going to have a horrendous time anyway, even if you like the topic. Trust your gut, yeah. I think so. Yeah, definitely. Previous students are, are good as well. If you ply them a coffee, invite them yeah. for a beer. <laughs> Something stronger. <laughs> Yeah, you want to come out for a beer and, a, and dinner like let's let's see what happens here yeah some some of it's tricky and it's the politics of academia is so complex in certain places yeah there's there's bits of it where I'm just like I'm not going anywhere near that because I can't even unfathom the politics of how complex that is so I'm just going to yeah. stay here in my little bubble where it's nice <laughs> I know what's going on I know I know like the dynamics of the situations and I get it and that's fine it's hard when you're first new, like going into places and figuring out where you fit and like who's going to be loyal to who and where those allegiances lie and all that. Oh, that's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Especially I have a tendency to gabble. You know, you're better off to keep, <laughs> you're better off to keep you, the old adage, you know, keep your ears and eyes open and your mouth shut. It's probably not too bad, at least for the first while in a lab just to see what's happening. And you will feel, I just, I constantly feel stupid. I've always felt stupid through my life, but never quite so stupid as, as you do doing, you know, a PhD or, or a postdoc, you know, cause you just, I don't know, you, just feel, you go from, a, I think when you go from your undergrad degree and you think you know something cause you've done well, and then you feel like you don't know anything. <laughs> yep. hundred <laughs> percent. That was like the biggest shock ever. I remember like finishing my undergrad, I got a first, I was like given this mm-hmm. award thing. And then, like, the first couple of days of my PhD, I was phoning my mum walking home and being like, I don't know what my job is. Like, I, I think <laughs> I did work today, but I have literally no idea. <laughs> yeah. I read some stuff, I answered some emails. But it is, like, the more you know, the more stupid you realise you truly are. <laughs> I think so. And then, well, that's a good realisation. I think that I think that's quite useful once you once you deal with it uh, and deal with so of it. I quite like the undergrads are smarter than me, and I'm cool with that. They're better looking. They're more talented, they're smarter, you know, I should hate them, but, but I don't, it's, got, it. it's like great. You, wanna, you never want to be the smartest person in the room, like what crap room no. to be in? Oh, horrible, horrible. No, to, to the opposite. My mom used to tell me it's, that it takes a wise man to act the fool. I don't need to act, but but still, it's not too, <laughs> it's not, it's not bad, um, it's not bad advice. Yeah. Do you have anything that you want to plug, social media, any events you're doing? blog posts, anything of that nature? No. (laughs) 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 